Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are today's top stories. President Biden will attend the dignified transfer for the three troops killed in the drone attack in Jordan. Who else will join and what the schedule looks like? Biden's sanctions against Israeli settlers in the West Bank drawing backlash from the Jewish state. Here the mayor of an Israeli settlement respond. Former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg is reportedly working on a plea deal. What charge the Manhattan District Attorney is considering? A federal probe into sexual assault allegations against wrestling promoter Vince McMahon is reportedly underway. We have more on the investigation and McMahon's response. Tesla is recalling over 2 million cars. That's nearly all of its vehicles sold in the U.S. What's driving the sudden move? All eyes on Punxsutawney Phil today for the annual Groundhog Day forecast. Did he see his shadow? And in New York, Staten Island, Chuck also gives his prediction. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. We open with the latest updates on the Israel-Hamas war. Israel is looking to move its military operations further south. The Israeli defense chief says the focus of the operations will shift from Khan Yunus to Rafah. That's the southernmost city in Gaza on the border with Egypt. At the same time, Syria reports that Israeli airstrikes hit targets near the capital of Damascus. And separately, Hamas is expected to respond soon to a hostage and ceasefire proposal. The proposal includes extended pauses in fighting and phased exchanges of Israeli hostages for Palestinian prisoners. Hamas says their priority is for those serving life sentences to get released. Staying in the region, a hostage situation in Turkey over the Israel-Hamas Israel war, a gunman held seven hostages at a P&G factory for hours earlier today to protest the war. Turkish police rescued the hostages after negotiations collapsed. Demonstrators gathered today in the streets of Amman, Jordan, to protest against the suspension of funding to UNRWA. That's the United Nations Relief Agency for Palestinians. Many Western countries have suspended financial support amid allegations that some staffers participated in the October 7th Hamas terror attack. UNRWA said yesterday it'll most likely have to cease all of its Middle East operations, including in Gaza. And if its funding remains suspended, it won't be able to function by the end of the month. Countries that have paused aid include some of UNRWA's biggest donors, like the United States, Germany and Britain. And President Biden's latest executive order targeting Israeli settlers in the West Bank is drawing backlash. The mayor of an Israeli settlement in the West Bank is condemning the order. It is surprising that the president decided to finger point at the small extreme group of Jews who are acting violently, who are treated by the Israeli law enforcement and ignoring Palestinian violence who has been killing thousands of Jews, innocent women, children and old people in their homes, on their buses, on the way to work or school. Biden's executive order sanctions four Israeli men. It accuses them of being involved in settler violence in the West Bank. The sanctions freeze their U.S. assets and generally bar Americans from dealing with them. 
The order also establishes a system for imposing financial sanctions and visa restrictions against individuals who attack or intimidate Palestinians or seize their property. The Israeli mayor calls the executive order disappointing and surprising. He says Biden should have looked into the facts before signing such an order. The Israeli finance minister also condemns the order. He says the settler violence campaign is an anti-Semitic lie and that Biden is wrong about Israeli settlers. President Biden will be attending the dignified transfer of the three service members killed in Jordan. Their remains will arrive at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware later today. The First Lady, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General C.Q. Brown, will join Biden. They will also meet privately with the families of the service members. A drone attack by an Iran-backed militia killed the three troops in Jordan last weekend. They were the first U.S. military members to be killed by Iran proxy groups since the Israel-Hamas war began. The three service members are 46-year-old Sergeant William Rivers, 24-year-old Sergeant Kennedy Sanders, and 23-year-old Sergeant Breonna Moffat. They all came from Georgia. Tensions flare in the West Bank. President Biden yesterday issued an executive order targeting violent Israeli settlers there. To discuss, we have Middle East Affairs Analyst from the Center for Security Policy, David Wormser. Thank you for your time today, David. Talk about the history of the conflict in the West Bank in recent decades. Well, the conflict in the West Bank started in 1967 when uh, 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 all the Arab armies, basically the entire Arab world, tried to attack Israel to wipe it out. And in defense, Israel took the West Bank. The West Bank had been part of the original territory that was to be given to the state of Israel in 1922. So it's not a foreign country. It's part of the original promise. But uh, obviously, there are two million plus Palestinian Arabs who live there. And it's a practical question of how the Israelis can rule over a territory that has a lot of uh, hostile population. At the same time, it's the biblical heartland. It's the heartland of the Jewish people. So the Israelis have settled in certain areas, uh, including Jerusalem, uh, but, but uh, and, and of course, in the last few years, that's created more and more tensions. Most of the tensions are Palestinians attacking Israelis. Two and a half thousand Palestinian attacks on Jews last year from the, in the West Bank for uh, Jewish attacks on Palestinians. So it's, it's, it's an unbelievable imbalance, and it's very odd that the United States focuses only on those four Jewish incidents, which the Israelis, by the way, legally prosecuted those four. That's how the United States knows about it. So there's legal recourse within yeah. Israel to deal with this and ignores the two and a half thousand, 2,600 actually, attacks last year by Palestinians on Jews. And David, why do you think Biden issued this executive order right now? And what, if any, geopolitical impact will it have as all eyes are on Israel and Gaza? Well, I, I think the reasons for it are twofold. One is obviously internal American politics. He's facing a very difficult reelection campaign. And the progressive, uh, the radical left base is very angry at him for supporting Israel. So he's trying to throw out bones to them on things like this. Uh, by, by showing himself to be standing up to Israel. But also there's a strategic thing is that he, he wants a Palestinian state. The Israelis do not want a Palestinian state. He has imagined that Prime Minister Netanyahu and his uh, right-wing base 
are the problem. So he's trying to politically split them from the rest of Israel. And so this sort of stuff, he's hoping, weakens the prime minister and signals that the United States is serious about helping the Palestinians uh, establish their state now. So I, I think there's both the strategic and the uh, domestic political aspect to it. Uh, I question it's, it's uh, how it works out, but that's, yeah. I think, the plan. And how is Israel responding to this executive order? Well, first of all, I think they feel upset once again, like the International Court of Justice, that they've been attacked on October 7th uh, in a most brutal fashion. They continue to be attacked in the West Bank. There's a great threat that another October 7th would happen on the West Bank. The Palestinian Authority is planning for it, training for it. Hamas says it'll do it. And yet the United States focuses on these four Jewish settlers rather than on the larger threat, which is a repeat of October 7th in the West Bank, and instead is drifting toward a policy of enabling that. So the Israelis, I think, and this is not only the right side of the spectrum in Israel, I think many Israelis are scratching their heads and thinking that the United States is a bit going off the rails here, as well as beginning to question whether the United States is genuinely so pro-Israeli at this point. David, I just want to switch gears here. Um, the U.S. military is saying it destroyed Houthi targets in Yemen, 10 drones, and a UAV control center. What kind of impact will this have on Houthi capabilities there? Virtually none. They can resupply that very quickly. The, the, this is a, a core mission of the U.S. Navy since the foundation of the United States. It's in the Constitution. Maintain a Navy. Raise an army, maintain a Navy. Why freedom of navigation is the core is really our national interest. It's defined us as a nation for 230 years. Uh, so this is something that has to be eventually done. This defensive measure of shooting down missiles that are shot at us and eventually a little bit hitting some of the targets that shot them, this is not going to do it. This is, this is a much larger conflict and a much larger attempt by Iran and its proxies to shut down U.S. power. And eventually it's going to have to meet U.S. power to be fixed. All right, David Wormser, Middle East Affairs Analyst from the Center for Security Policy. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office is reportedly working on a plea deal with former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg. That's allegedly over a potential perjury charge related to New, York civil, New York's civil probe into the Trump Organization's finances. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the latest in the former president's legal battles. Manhattan prosecutors are reportedly negotiating a plea deal with former Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg. Anonymous sources told the New York Times, AP, and ABC News talks relate to a potential perjury charge stemming from Weisselberg's testimony to the New York Attorney General's office and at Trump's civil fraud trial last year. Prosecutors are expected not to call Weisselberg as a witness as part of the deal. The unnamed sources claim talks are still in early stages and could fall apart. The former Trump CFO would need to concede he lied under oath. If Weisselberg does agree to a plea deal, it would be his second guilty plea in two years. He served 100 days in jail last year after pleading guilty to 15 tax fraud-related charges in 2022. He is still on probation. New York Attorney General Letitia James accuses Trump and his business of overstating his net worth and property values to secure better loans and insurance rates. The lawsuit seeks $370 million from Trump and other defendants and a lifetime business ban in the state. A court spokesman said Thursday a verdict in the case has been pushed back until mid-February. Judge Arthur Engren issued a summary judgment finding Trump liable for fraud in September last year. 
The judge had stated he was hoping to make a final decision on penalties by the end of January. The spokesman said the new timeline is a rough estimate that could still change. In London, a high court judge threw out Trump's lawsuit over the Steele dossier on Thursday. The document, authored by a British ex-spy, played a key role in the FBI's probe into debunked allegations of a conspiracy between Trump's campaign and Russia to swing the 2016 election. The judge stated there were no compelling reasons to allow the claim to go to trial. Meanwhile, in Washington, Trump's federal election case has now been on hold for over 50 days, as the former president appeals on claims of presidential immunity. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Coming up, tomorrow marks one year since the toxic chemical train derailment in Ohio. We take a look back as President Biden plans a trip to East Palestine this month. And a stolen package case takes an unexpected turn when the victim sees the surveillance video and is shocked who the thief is. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Federal prosecutors have been looking into claims of sexual assault and sex trafficking against Vince McMahon, according to a Wall Street Journal report. McMahon is one of the founders of the WWE, the largest professional wrestling promotion in the world. The report says prosecutors in New York have been talking to some of McMahon's alleged accusers. Federal prosecutors have been looking into claims of sexual assault and sexual trafficking against Vince McMahon, according to a Wall Street Journal report. McMahon is as we said, one of the founders of the WWE. The report says prosecutors in New York have been talking to some of McMahon's accusers. McMahon resigned from wrestling giant TKO Group and the subsidiary WWE last week over a lawsuit accusing him of the crimes. The suit was filed last week by a former employee in federal court in Connecticut. It accuses McMahon, WWE, and other executives of physical and emotional abuse, sexual assault, and trafficking. It seeks unspecified costs and damages. McMahon vigorously denies the allegations, calling them baseless. He said he looks forward to defending his name. Ex-workers of The Messenger took legal action yesterday against the company through a class action lawsuit. This just one day after the digital news site closed down and let go of all of its workers, approximately 300 people. The lawsuit claims that The Messenger broke a law safeguarding employees during big layoffs or closures. It says the company did not provide workers with a minimum of 60 days notice and didn't give them the benefits and wages they were supposed to receive. The collapse of the outlet, founded by media entrepreneur Jimmy Finkelstein, marks one of the largest and swiftest failures of a media outlet in recent memory. The Messenger's closure comes just eight months after its debut. The company was built on a strategy of generating internet traffic from social media platforms and search engines. Tesla is recalling nearly all of its vehicles in the U.S. due to small font sizes on warning lights, which could increase the risk of a crash. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says the issue was discovered during a routine audit of Tesla vehicles. Tesla says it is not aware of any crashes or injuries caused by the issue. Nearly 2.2 million vehicles are affected by the recall. Tesla has begun releasing an over-the-air software update to fix the issue, free of charge. The agency says owner notification letters are expected to be mailed March 30th. It's been one year since the catastrophic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. 
The wreck caused a massive fire in the area and spilled toxic chemicals in a small town of roughly 4,700 people. President Biden is scheduled to visit the town to mark the anniversary. NTD's Daniel Monahan has a look back on the disaster. The train of three locomotives and 150 freight cars was headed from Illinois to Pennsylvania when it derailed. The National Transportation Safety Board said 20 of the cars were carrying hazardous materials, including 10 that derailed. The NTSB said 38 cars in total left the tracks, and the ensuing fire damaged an additional 12. Over the weekend following the derailment, emergency crews evacuated residents from their homes within a mile of the fire. We tried to stay around as long as we could, but then the law came around and was enforcing it. They chased us out. Days after the wreck, Ohio officials said they would carry out a controlled release of hazardous chemicals at the site of the train derailment. I got to move because I'm not safe being here. Evacuees kept complaining of chemical smells. The creek by my house had a very, very strong chemical smell to it. Um, I went in my house, it was worse. After railroad crews drained and burned off a toxic chemical from five tanker cars, residents were allowed to return to their homes on February 8th. Many in the area complained of headaches and irritated eyes and noted that chickens, fish and other wildlife died off. Despite that, state health officials insisted to residents that East Palestine was a safe place to be. President Biden is expected to highlight the federal government's response to the disaster during a trip to East Palestine this month. Former President Trump criticized Biden for finally visiting the town, calling it a year late. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The first in a one-two punch of atmospheric river storms soaked Southern California with drenching rains yesterday. It flooded roads, toppled trees, and caused traffic accidents. A second heavier storm is due to roll into California this weekend. This one will bring high winds back to the northern part of the state with much heavier downpours in the south. The storm will also dump more snow in the mountains. The California Governor's Office of Emergency Services has activated its operations center. It's also positioned personnel and equipment in areas most risk for the weather. A Southern California resident recalls how the pouring rain got him into a dangerous situation. Frank Capitulo had to be rescued after his car stalled in the middle of an inundated street. I didn't see, you know, I, I already saw this water really in the street, but I didn't expect that it was that deep already. Then they pulled me out, you know, give me your arm, because they were, the truck was starting my car, and uh, give me your arm, you know, arm. They pulled me out of my car. If you think it's like this, if you can, you know, if you get, you know, if you can make it, don't do, you know, don't go through water like this one. You don't want to get stuck, you know. Capitulo says he saw other cars managing to pass through the water, so he tried as well. He suspects that the waves the other vehicles made entered his car's exhaust, causing the emergency. Capitulo wasn't the only one getting stuck. He recalled that other drivers were in an even worse situation, being totally submerged underwater. First responders reportedly rescued those drivers first before helping Capitulo. An Arctic spell has been hitting Alaska, plunging much of the state into a deep freeze. Temperatures have dipped as low as minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit in recent days in some places. Anchorage is seeing some of its coldest temperatures in years. The city's mayor has opened warming facilities for those who are homeless or who don't have reliable heating.
been cold and we've had a ton of snow. And really, if you like the outdoors in the winter, it's it's been one of the best winters so far that I can remember. Uh, it's critical, you know, as you can imagine, when it gets less than minus 10, minus 20, you really got to just have everything covered. Otherwise, uh, you know, you're at risk for frostbite. The extreme cold has caused heating fuel to thicken so much that home heating systems and stoves stopped working and water lines have frozen in some spots. Police say a man believed to have fled a fire at a home in Sutton was found dead early Wednesday, possibly due to exposure. Anchorage is asking businesses to vacate their properties until snow is removed from the rooftops. At least two commercial buildings have suffered collapses under the weight and crews are shoveling thick layers of snow from rooftops around the city. For the first time, an advertising company has settled an opioid lawsuit. Publicis, a company that worked on Purdue Pharma's OxyContin account, was accused of falsely marketing opioids as safe. The agreed settlement of $350 million must be paid within the next two months. In addition, the French marketing company will not take on any more opioid clients. Publicis worked on Purdue Pharma's OxyContin account and, according to New York Attorney General Letitia James, convinced doctors to overprescribe opioids. The company, in a statement, said it did not admit to wrongdoing, but hopes the payment will help the effort to combat opioid addiction. The Miami Police Department is asking for help to solve a porch pirate case. The case involves a woman telling a child to steal a package. Police shared a video of the incident. The adult actually is telling the child, motioning where the package is and telling the child to go get that package. Uh, we don't know if the child even knew what he or she was doing. We're not sure who this adult is, if it's a parent, a guardian, but regardless, it's an adult that should know better. We want your help in identifying this adult. Police said the package had about $40 worth of clothing inside it. The victim of the theft said she checked her ring video when her package didn't show up. She said she was stunned to see a child was involved. Quaker Oats is recalling another granola bar over possible salmonella contamination. The company says the recall has been expanded to include its Quaker Chewy Dips Llama Rama. The bars were discontinued last September and they have best before dates of either February 10th or 11th of this year. The products were sold in all 50 states as well as Puerto Rico, Guam, and Saipan. The initial recall was announced in December and was first expanded to include additional products last month. For a full list of the recalled products, visit QuakerRecallUSA.com. Consumers could also scan the smart label or QR code on their products to see if they have been recalled. recalled. And Bissell has recalled about 142,000 of its multi-reach hand and floor vacuum cleaner models due to a fire hazard. According to the Consumer Product Safety Commission, the vacuum's battery pack can overheat and smoke. So far, Bissell has received 17 reports of the vacuum's smoking. Six of those included the battery pack catching on fire. At least two minor burn injuries were reported and three incidents resulted in minor property damage. Consumers are being asked not to throw the recalled battery in the trash. Instead, contact Bissell for instructions on how to deplete the charge on the battery to receive a free replacement. Coming up, will the South Carolina primary have significant impact on President Biden's re-election bid? And how are issues like the Gaza war and illegal immigration affecting his political standing? We speak with a political analyst. 
and a fireside chat about the changing migration patterns of Americans within America. We speak with author and political commentator Roger Simon. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley's handling of China. Fellow South Carolina Republicans are now criticizing the former governor for her stance on the communist country. ABC 15 was at a Thursday press conference where Congressman Russell Fry spoke on the issue. Nikki Haley thinks that China is a great friend and gave them land in South Carolina, almost 200 acres. Donald Trump took on the Chinese from since day one, and he honestly, he was the first person to call out China for what they are. Fry was joined by Congresswoman Nancy Mace and two state lawmakers, all speaking in support of Trump. Mace accused the former governor of rolling out the red carpet for communist China, referring to Haley's efforts to attract Chinese businesses to South Carolina. Haley, meanwhile, told Fox News that she doesn't have to win her home state to keep her campaign going. Success means being competitive, closing the gap, making sure that we continue to go forward as we go into Super Tuesday. It's just about keeping that momentum going. You know, we, we got 20% in Iowa, we got 43% in New Hampshire. Let's bring it a little bit closer so that we can get closer into him and make it more competitive going into Super Tuesday. That's what we want to do. South Carolina's Republican primaries will be held in about three weeks. And Super Tuesday, the day that the most states hold their primaries, is just 10 days after that. The Oregon Supreme Court ruled on Thursday that 10 Republican lawmakers who boycotted legislative sessions last year cannot run for re-election. The lawmakers were opposing bills on abortion access for minors, cross-sex procedures and gun control. The walkout began last May. It denied the Democratic majority two-thirds quorum needed to vote on bills. It was the longest walkout in the state's history, lasting around six weeks. The High Court's ruling upholds the Secretary of State's decision to disqualify the senators from the ballot. That's after Oregonians voted to amend the state constitution, barring lawmakers who have more than 10 unexcused absences from re-election. Republicans control a minority of the Oregon State Senate, making up 12 of the 30 seats. This latest decision affects all but two of the GOP senators. And here to discuss Biden's presidential run in the upcoming primary is A. Scott Bolden, a former chair of the D.C. Democratic Party and former New York assistant district attorney. Welcome, Scott. In the upcoming South Carolina Democratic primary, do you anticipate a significant impact on Joe Biden's trajectory, similar to the decisive victory that he experienced in 2020? Well, the circumstances are different, but the impact will be the same. He's the president now. He's the incumbent, and he's going to be the nominee for the Democratic Party. What will be close to look at, or what, you, what we really want to see, is what voter turnout is going to be. He's got two competitors who are going to be more of an annoyance than a, a making a real run for him in South Carolina. It's got a large black vote. We know that a snapshots of um, snapshots of uh, polling has shown that he's losing some black support. I don't really believe that, but South Carolina wants to have a big turnout for black voters and a big big victory for him to demonstrate or to rebut what some of those recent pollings are showing. That's what we need to look at for tonight. How big he wins will be important, and how much of the black vote he gets in South Carolina will be even more important. Yeah, you've pointed to a number of interesting points here. Um, considering this uncontested, but contested, but not competitive uh, primary that is, is coming up, 
what do you think the political narrative could be once we see what the voter turnout is like and what the makeup is like? Well, you know, one of the challenges is both of the candidates, the GOP presumed nominee, as well as the Democratic nominee from polling don't appear to be very popular. South Carolina could rebut that and have a large showing and a large uh, energy behind Joe Biden with his Democratic victory. And I know the South Carolina Democratic State Party certainly wants to show that to rebut those pollings. It'll be very important because we know black voters, brown voters, gay voters, young voters are the base of the Democratic Party and the coalition that put Biden over uh, four years ago. He's got to put that coalition back together. And notwithstanding how great the economy is, Americans still aren't feeling it, according to polling. And so now is the time, some 11, 10 months out, that he begins to shore up his base, right, make people feel like the economy is better. And whether it's more money in their pocket or more jobs or whatever it's going to take, He's got to be likable and he's got to explain to the voters why their life is better now than four years ago. That and demand, Biden that debate, has, that he has been attending right now. churches and barbershops, you know, in an effort to try to contact uh, these black voters who traditionally would have voted for him but are perhaps not as sure this time around, according to polls. Do you think this kind of strategy is, will be a winning strategy for him? Well, he's going to have to push back about he only comes around or the Dems only come around to our black community when they want our vote. And in the interim, they take it for granted. Uh, it's really about substance over style. Donald Trump and the Republican Party are never going to get 80, 90 percent of the black vote. But in certain swing states, if they can swing 5 percent or 10 percent, that could make a difference in places like Pennsylvania and Michigan. I think his strategy is right. But it's what he says and how he makes them feel when he goes to those barbershops and those churches yeah. and reminds them of the substance and how their life has improved and under there his are two, leadership. There are two other major issues that he also could be facing in terms of voters being uncertain about him. We've got this faction within the Democratic Party of voters who uh, support uh, uh, support Palestine and they're protesting his response to the war in Gaza. And then there's also the immigration crisis and people watching closely about how Biden is dealing with that. How can Biden uh, get his message across and pull voters in and what are the challenges there? Well, I think if the uh, Hamas-Israeli war could be resolved, that would help him a lot. I mean, many young voters and, and voters of color identify with Palestinians, and you can't deny the visual and the videos of 10,000 or more innocent Palestinians being um, uh, killed or affected by this war, notwithstanding Israel's right to seek out Hamas. So he needs to resolve this war or call for a ceasefire, not choosing one side against the other, but for humanitarian reasons. Maybe he does that, maybe he doesn't. Uh, in regard to um, uh, the other issue, uh, he's got to sell. He's got to sell his message. He's got to be able to tell them why his leadership is better than Donald Trump's, and he's got to hope that he can convince them. He's got 11 months to do it, uh, but he can win this race. But he's got a lot of work to do. Okay, A. Scott Bolden, former chair of the D.C. Democratic Party. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Oregon Supreme Court ruled on Thursday that 10 Republican lawmakers who boycotted legislative sessions last year cannot run for re-election. The lawmakers were opposing bills on abortion access for minors, cross-sex procedures, and gun control. The walkout began last May. It denied the Democratic majority the two-thirds quorum needed to vote on the bills. 
It was the longest walkout in the state's history, lasting around six weeks. The high court's ruling upholds the Secretary of State's decision to disqualify the senators from the ballot. That's after Oregonians voted to amend the state constitution, barring lawmakers who have more than 10 unexcused absences from re-election. Republicans control a minority of the Oregon State Senate, making up 12 of the 30 seats. This latest decision affects all but two of the GOP senators. And you've heard the numbers many times before. Droves of people moving from blue states to red states in the U.S. in search of a better life, be it lower taxes, more freedom, or perhaps more sunshine and open fields. The novelist, screenwriter, and political commentator Roger Simon made that move himself. And then, he says, he was compelled to document this phenomenon that's shaping daily life for so many Americans. He joined us earlier in the studio to discuss his new book, American Refugees. Roger, we have spoken many times about usually international politics and the latest that's happening all around the world, which is also an area of your expertise. But now you've, you've written this, this book all about America and a phenomenon that's happening within America. Tell me, what are American refugees? Well, you know, the first thing to remember, Stefania, is that this is a nation of refugees. In New York City, where we're sitting now, is a city of refugees with the most famous uh, symbol of refugees in the entire world sitting out there in the river, the Statue of Liberty. Uh, but what has happened in America now in recent years is a new form of refugee. Because the thing that the refugees from abroad were looking for, that give me your tired, your poor, your yearning masses, your humble masses yearning to breathe free, the, the lines of Emma Lazarus that are on the Statue of Liberty, uh, now Americans are looking for that within America because they have discovered that there are things about the places that they were, they were living that are no longer the land of the free to them. And they were looking for a place to live that was, and that meant the red states. And my book, American Refugees, is about those people that made that trek. I'm a write-what-you-know person. I, I stuck to what I knew a little better. Right, you yourself made that trip from I did, in the, LA to June, Tennessee. It's 2018 that I uh, decamped Los Angeles, California, where I lived for close to 50 years, for Nashville, Tennessee, uh, with my wife and daughter. We all went together, and uh, it was a quite an amazing change. The people who made that big trip—it's a big trip to uh, pick up Howarth at home and uh, across the country. I did it for largely what might, might, you might call ideological reasons, uh, for looking for the America that uh, you read about in the Constitution. I, I lived in Los Angeles and New York all my life. Okay. Now, in Los Angeles and New York, there are many famous religious institutions of all denominations. That, but that's not what you notice most in the cities. In Los Angeles, you notice Warner Brothers and Universal, the Getty Museum. You don't, you don't quite see these things. They're there. They're big synagogues, they're big churches, but they're, they're not the fabric of the city. If you go to Nashville, you realize more than anything, I mean, country music, of course, but being Nashville is very much there. But you see the steeples everywhere. And it had a tremendous effect on me because I, starting to have a lot of evangelical Christian friends. Then working with the Epic Times, I had a lot of Falun Gong friends. I'm Jewish, 
And I ended up becoming more involved in my own faith because of it. And I think this was a very positive movement in my character. And I think that, honestly, that's what's great about all the people down in these states. That's why I really like them, because, because they do go to church and they do go to the synagogue. I started to realize that I was getting a personal edu education in the right way to live. That was beyond, way beyond just politics, but into questions that are of the eternal nature, as we say. It's been such a fascinating discussion to hear more about this and this phenomenon, which really is impacting everybody in some way here in the U.S. It's great speaking with you, Roger. Thank, Thank you. you so much. I'll see you online on, on NTD. Absolutely. You can see a longer version of our discussion at ntd.com. And to read more about this phenomenon, you can pick up Roger's book, American Refugees, The Untold Story of the Mass Migration from Blue to Red States. Up next, French farmers today starting to lift nationwide roadblocks. Find out why they're stopping now and what they say about possible future protests. And Germany is seeing yet another day of strikes as bus and tram workers are called to walk off the job. How it all affects public transport. And a massive explosion in Kenya sends hundreds to the hospital. Footage captured shows a fireball in the night sky. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Tragedy in Kenya. At least three people were killed and over 280 people were injured in a gas explosion in the nation's capital. A truck loaded with liquid petroleum gas cylinders exploded and sparked a massive fire overnight. The truck was parked inside a storage and filling site. The fire burned down a nearby garment and textile warehouse. The blaze also damaged several other vehicles and businesses. The site of the explosion was also close to residential areas. The Kenya Red Cross said at least 24 people were critically injured. Over 280 people were taken to hospitals for treatment. Authorities say the death toll may rise. And now for shift in gears, we have some short headlines from France and other European countries. Just a few moments ago, the United Nations' highest court made a ruling regarding the Russia-Ukraine war. Ukraine ac accuses Russia of violating the 1948 Genocide Convention by justifying the invasion using an alleged genocide. Ukraine argues there's no risk of genocide in eastern Ukraine. Russia urged judges to throw out the case, saying Ukraine's legal arguments were flawed and the court had no jurisdiction. Judges today decided that the court only has jurisdiction to hear a small part of the original case. They threw out the request by Ukraine to rule on whether or not the Russian invasion violated the 1948 Genocide Convention. The court now decided that will only will rule on whether there was a genocide happening in the Donetsk and Luhansk areas of eastern Ukraine now occupied by Russia. This as Russia is advancing troops in Ukraine. Moscow says its forces have regained control in many areas after a failed Ukrainian counteroffensive, including settlements in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk and Kharkiv regions. Moscow says it carried out almost 130 precision strikes against Ukraine in January. It says the strikes targeted military infrastructure and military industrial complex facilities. 
Canada's foreign minister visiting Kyiv today to meet her Ukrainian counterpart. She announced that the two countries will launch a new international effort to bring Ukrainian children back to Ukraine from Russia. Ukraine says about 20,000 children have been taken to Russia without the consent of their families. Kyiv calls this a war crime that meets the UN treaty definition of genocide. Moscow denies the accusation and says it has protected vulnerable children from the war zone. Work with Ukraine to help develop a consular case for each child. From there, Canada will use its diplomatic network around the world to reach out as if these children were Canadian children, and we will talk to many, many countries of the world. After days of blocking highways near Paris and around the country, French farmers today started to lift their roadblocks. They says the French government made numerous pledges to meet some of the farmers' demands. Those include not raising taxes on tractor diesel, easing pesticide regulations, more safety checks on food imports from other countries, and more farmers now say the government has to act fast on its promises. People are fed up. We can see it clearly. Given the scale of the mobilization, we know that the level of being fed up has reached its maximum. And as a result here, I think that if we do not obtain things, it will start moving again, that's for sure. Germans endured yet another day of strikes today. Bus and tram stations across the country came to a halt as 90,000 transport workers were called to walk off the job. The 24-hour strike was called by labor union Verdi in all federal states except Bavaria. It's the latest in a series of industrial actions that have hit the country's transport sector in recent weeks and disrupted millions of commuters and travelers. The Employers Association unfortunately has presented a counter-demand which we feel is a return to the Middle Ages. They would like a 43-hour work week on a voluntary basis and they want to abolish the protection against dismissal we are entitled to after 15 years. So we are unfortunately forced to go on strike. Otherwise, we would not have gone on strike. Verdi said it had demanded better working conditions. It wants new measures brought in, including reduced working hours and more holiday entitlement. The latest action comes a day after security staff went on strike at 11 German airports. That led to more than 1,000 flight cancellations and affected 200,000 passengers, according to Airports Association ADV. Germany also saw farmer strikes last month, with tractors blocking roads in protest at subsidy cuts. Are you ready for an early spring? Well, today is Groundhog Day. And the country's most famous weather predictor, Punxsutawney Phil. But what this weather did not provide is a shadow or reason to hide. Glad tidings on this Groundhog Day. An early spring is on the way. The celebrated groundhog emerged from his burrow this morning. Apparently he saw no shadow, so it will be an early spring. This year, the weather forecast event gathered thousands of revelers in Punxsutawney, a small town northeast of Pittsburgh. And a group of first responders in Bozeman, Montana, aren't horsing around. They came to the aid of an equine in trouble earlier this week. 
The Central Valley Fire District says they received a call about a horse that had fallen into a 10-foot hole that opened in a pasture Tuesday night. The 1,200-pound horse was said to be in good condition. Officials say crews opened a trench and the horse was then able to get out on its own without additional rescue efforts. No bystanders or first responders were injured during the rescue. Coconuts are a wellspring of health benefits for the body. They're flavorful oil, water, milk, and meat offer nutrition, skin care, and culinary treasures. Here's Gina Marie with Strong Mind and Body. Drinking coconut water may bring to mind exotic tropical vacations and little paper umbrellas. But the nutritional value and health benefits of coconuts are particularly noteworthy. In the countries where coconuts grow, their meat and water are part of the daily diet. Some locals even drink coconut water regularly to ward off parasites. The coconut palm originated in Southeast Asia. It traveled throughout the Pacific with merchant sailors or on the drifting ocean currents. Interestingly, coconuts can float long distances and once washed ashore can put down roots and grow again. The coconut is not a nut but a stone fruit. The tree produces 30 to 70 annual coconuts for up to 70 years. Coconuts are a sustainable food that supply nutrition for millions of people and every part of the coconut tree is useful. Its therapeutic effects vary depending on the plant parts used. Its properties are anti-inflammatory, antioxidant, antifungal, antimicrobial, anti-tumor, anti-hypertensive, and anti-osteoporosis. Coconut meat contains dietary fiber, vitamins, and minerals. Coconuts can benefit the heart, brain, eyes, skin and hair, bones and teeth, and also prevent diabetes and cancer. Young green coconut water is refreshing and delicious. In 2013, it exploded in popularity as a sports drink due to its many natural electrolytes. The Philippines are the world's biggest producer of coconuts. Since 2015, their export of fresh coconuts has increased by more than 80%. And as for the oil, the best quality is unrefined. It's called virgin coconut oil. Fresh coconut meat is pressed to extract the oil. The best extraction method is cold-pressed as it preserves more nutrients. So just in closing, who should avoid coconut? Those with kidney problems since coconut water contains high levels of potassium and those at risk of heart disease. This is due to coconut's saturated fat content. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. Protesters in Amman, Jordan, calling for UNRWA funding to resume. Over a dozen countries have paused their contributions to the United Nations Relief Agency for Palestinians after some staffers were accused of participating in the October 7th Hamas terror attack. Biden's sanctions against Israeli settlers in the West Bank drawing backlash from the Jewish state. Here, the mayor of an Israeli settlement respond. A new jobs report released today, beating expectations by a large margin. But there may be some points of concern when you dig deeper. The Nevada primary and caucuses are coming up next week. More on why the state has two contests instead of one. All eyes on Punxsutawney Phil today for the annual Groundhog Day forecast. Did he see his shadow? And in New York, Staten Island, Chuck also gives his prediction. And in golf news, what happens with the proposed merger between Live Golf and the PGA in light of the PGA's new partnership? NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss. 
This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Demonstrators gathered today in the streets of Amman, Jordan, to protest against the suspension of funding to UNRWA. That's the United Nations Relief Agency for Palestinians. Many Western countries have suspended financial support amid allegations that some staffers participated in the October 7th Hamas terror attack. UNRWA said yesterday it'll most likely have to cease all of its Middle East operations, including in Gaza. And if its funding remains suspended, it won't be able to function by the end of the month. Countries that have paused aid include some of UNRWA's biggest donors, like the United States, Germany and Britain. The Indian Navy rescued an Iranian-flagged fishing vessel off the coast of Somalia Wednesday. Authorities said the boat was hijacked by Somali pirates. All 19 members of the Pakistani crew were freed. The rescue comes amid a resurgence of Somali piracy in the Indian Ocean since December. India has deployed at least a dozen warships east of the Red Sea to provide security against pirates. The government has investigated more than 250 vessels as Western powers focus on attacks by Yemen's Iran-backed Houthis. India has not joined the U.S.-led task force for the Red Sea and doesn't have any warships there. President Biden's latest executive order targeting Israeli settlers in the West Bank is drawing backlash. The mayor of an Israeli settlement in the West Bank is condemning the order. It is surprising that the president decided to finger point at the small extreme group of Jews who are acting violently, who are treated by the Israeli law enforcement and ignoring Palestinian violence who has been killing thousands of Jews, innocent women, children and old people in their homes, on their buses, on the way to work or school. Biden's executive order sanctions four Israeli men. It accuses them of being involved in settler violence in the West Bank. The sanctions freeze their U.S. assets and generally bar Americans from dealing with them. The order also establishes a system for imposing financial sanctions and visa restrictions against individuals who attack or intimidate Palestinians or seize their property. The Israeli mayor calls the executive order disappointing and surprising. He says Biden should have looked into the facts before signing such an order. The Israeli finance minister also condemns the order. He says the settler violence campaign is an anti-Semitic lie and that Biden is wrong about Israeli settlers. President Biden will be attending the dignified transfer of the three service members killed in Jordan. Their remains will arrive at Dover Air Force Base in Delaware later today. The First Lady, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General CQ Brown, will join Biden. They will also meet privately with the families of service members. A drone attack by an Iran-backed militia killed the three troops in Jordan last weekend. They were the first U.S. military members to be killed by an Iran proxy group since the Israel-Hamas war began. The three service members are 46-year-old Sergeant William Rivers, 24-year-old Sergeant Kennedy Sanders, and 23-year-old Sergeant Breonna Moffat. They all came from Georgia. And the U.S. plans to respond to the deaths of three of, its, of the three soldiers. The Biden administration has approved a plan to target Iranian personnel and facilities in Iraq and Syria. For analysis, we're joined by William Ruger, president of the American Institute for Economic Research and Afghanistan war veteran. Ruger was also ambassador nominee to Afghanistan under former President Donald Trump. William, what could these strikes on Iranian targets look like? Well, I think the first question to ask really is, are they actually going to be effective? Uh, and again, 
the means in international relations and in foreign policy should be targeted to those ends. And we should consider whether they actually uh, would meet those goals. And one of the challenges, of course, of any types of strikes is that, um, you know, they haven't been effective in the past at deterring uh, or stopping behaviors that we don't like in the Red Sea. So I think that the, the administration is facing a lot of real challenges here in finding something that would actually be effective. And that's probably one of the reasons why they're taking the time uh, to assess, uh, because, again, just going off and uh, and making strikes without really understanding some of the potential unintended consequences would not be wise. OK, and how could these strikes play into the Middle East conflict as a whole? Well, again, like the Middle East has a lot of interconnections here. Uh, and one of the goals, I think, of U.S. policy uh, should be try to reduce the possibility that the United States would get dragged into further conflicts. Uh, and, uh, you know, again, looking at the last 20 years of American foreign policy in this part of the world doesn't give you a lot of confidence that U.S. responses would be effective at ultimately meeting our goals and keeping the United States out of uh, a kind of quagmire. I mean, we've seen whether it's been in the Horn of Africa, whether it's been in Iraq, whether it's been in Syria and before that Afghanistan, a long history of engagement with not a lot to show from it. So I think one of the goals of the United States approach here should be to do something that doesn't necessarily let, lead us uh, to be dragged into further conflict. There's a lot to be learned from the lesson of Ronald Reagan back in the 1980s when the United States was having problems in its intervention in Lebanon. Uh, many Americans were killed there, and yet they found a way to get us out of that conflict without sinking deeper. And I think that's going to take an act of, I think, political statesmanship. Yeah. And what do you think that political statesmanship would have to look like? Well, I think it's going to be trying to find a way to both support our partner in Israel in its legitimate efforts to secure itself without alienating other parts of the Middle East and alienating uh, others around the world. And that's going to be a difficult balance to strike. Um, you know, obviously, the United States has been supportive, rightly so, of Israel's right to defend itself uh, after the October 7th attacks. On the other hand, I think it wants to signal that not anything that Israel does is acceptable uh, because of the fact that uh, there needs to be proportionality in terms of how uh, Israel handles the potential for civilian casualties there and to signal a desire for there to be aid that reaches innocent uh, uh, people in Gaza. Uh, again, that's going to be very difficult to handle. Uh, uh, and I think that when it comes to uh, obviously Red Sea shipping, they should promote the idea that the international community should be supportive of protecting sea lanes because not everything should rot, uh, fall on the U.S. and the U.S. taxpayer and the U.S. Navy. There needs to be a better, more robust international community response as well, since they benefit. Uh, and it's not just the United States that benefits from international trade in that region. And William, I just want to come back to the Biden administration's response to the, the deaths of these three soldiers. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the U.S. response to these attacks um, could be multi-leveled, uh, come in stages and be sustained over time. Based on his statements, what could we expect the U.S. to do? Well, I, I, again, if this is a sustained campaign, one of the first things that should happen is that there should be better engagement with Congress, because in the United States system, Congress should have a role to play in authorizing the use of military force that isn't merely uh, defense uh, when there's an imminent attack or an attack underway. Congress needs to play that role. That will allow 
uh, the administration to build support. It will allow the administration to hear back from different viewpoints, and it would gather American public opinion behind what they do choose to do. My worry is that they're going to go it alone. There'll be uh, continuous strikes, and uh, they won't be all that effective, and the policy will lose favor, uh, and, uh, and, and again, American interests won't necessarily be secure. Uh, so I would advocate and argue that uh, trying to build uh, a stronger sense of support in the country for what we do, again, especially since Americans are very hesitant to want to get involved in Middle East conflicts, uh, given that 20-year uh, history uh, of difficulties. All right. William Ruger, president of the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you so much for your time. Coming up, Tesla is recalling over 2 million cars. That's nearly all of its vehicles sold in the U.S. What's driving the sudden move? And a federal probe into sexual assault allegations against wrestling promoter Vince McMahon is reportedly underway. We have more on the investigation and McMahon's response. The first jobs report for 2024 just released to the public today. How does it look? NTD business host Don Ma takes, talks to a labor economist. Welcome back. Tesla is recalling nearly all of its vehicles in the U.S. due to small font sizes on warning lights, which could increase the risk of crash. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration says the issue was discovered during a routine audit of Tesla vehicles. Tesla says it is not aware of any crashes or injuries caused by the issue. Nearly 2.2 million vehicles are affected by the recall. Tesla has begun releasing an over-the-air software update to fix the issue free of charge. The agency says owner notification letters are expected to be mailed March 30th. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics released new labor market data earlier this morning. The U.S. economy added more than 350,000 jobs last month. To break down this number and what it means, NTD business host Don Ma speaks to a labor economist for more. And now joining us is Julia Pollock, chief economist at Zip Recruiter. So, Julia, the first jobs report for 2024. Uh, to start off, give us an overview of how we're doing it in, in terms of labor market. So, Don, this was a pretty striking report, which showed both an acceleration in job gains and a broadening of those gains across the economy. That said, it was also a confusing report with quite a lot of caveats and mixed signals. So, over 300,000 jobs added. Uh, is this a big number? This is a huge number. It's a blockbuster number for January. The number for December was also revised upwards uh, past 300,000. So uh, very, very big numbers for the last two months. Uh, that said, in the household survey, which is supposed to measure the same thing, but from the household's perspective, uh, employment actually declined by over 680,000 in December and by 31,000 in January. Over the whole year, in 2023, uh, this report with its benchmark revisions for the previous year actually raised the estimate of the number of gains over the year from 2.7 million to 3.1 million, which would make 2023 a blockbuster year in the labor market. The household report suggests not so much. It was pretty mediocre with only 1.9 million jobs added. So there's a big, big gap between those two reports, and I think we'll need some more data to figure out which one is right. 
Yeah, it seems like a confusing report to digest, but can we say for sure whether the labor market is doing well or not? So, uh, the unemployment rate still remains very, very low. We've now had 25 months of unemployment at or below 4%. That is a great number. Typically, when unemployment is below 4%, magical things happen in the labor market. Gender employment gaps, racial employment gaps, and wage gaps all start to narrow. Employers have to lower requirements for jobs. They have to cast a broader net in recruiting. They have to roll out the red carpet for workers. Uh, so very exciting, good things happen when unemployment is that low. And uh, and you know the average unemployment rate would make 2023 sort of the, the sixth best year on record after the early 50s and late 60s. Uh, when it comes to job growth before this report, it seemed like it was a fairly mediocre year, though, um, with, with 2023 in the bottom half of all years on record. Um, this report uh, raises that substantially and, and you know, says it was, it was a good year, but with all of those caveats I mentioned. One issue is that you know, January, the January report always is affected by uh, a large seasonal adjustment factor. Typically, many, many workers uh, are hired seasonal workers in November, and then they're laid off in January. The labor market has become less seasonal, though, with fewer workers being hired in November and fewer being laid off in January. And so um, this report, you know, rather than actually showing 45,000 new retail jobs you know, added, it shows that fewer retail workers were laid off than usual, also because fewer seasonal workers were hired. Um, so really this report may not be the one that uh, clears up our understanding of the labor market. I think we need to wait one more month for more data. All right, thank you very much, Julia, Zip Recruiter. Thank you very much, John. Presidential candidate Nikki Haley's handling of China. Fellow South Carolina Republicans are now criticizing the former governor for her stance on the communist country. ABC 15 was at a, pre at a Thursday press conference where Congressman Russell Fry spoke on the issue. Nikki Haley thinks that China is a great friend and gave them land in South Carolina, almost 200 acres. Donald Trump took on the Chinese from since day one, and he honestly, he was the first person to call out China for what they are. Fry was joined by Congresswoman Nancy Mace and two state lawmakers, all speaking in support of Trump. Mace accused the former governor of rolling out the red carpet for communist China, referring to Haley's efforts to attract Chinese businesses to South Carolina. Haley, meanwhile, told Fox News that she doesn't have to win her home state to keep her campaign going. Success means being competitive, closing the gap, making sure that we continue to go forward as we go into Super Tuesday. It's just about keeping that momentum going. You know, we, we got 20% in Iowa, we got 43% New Hampshire. Let's bring it a little bit closer so that we can get closer into him and make it more competitive going into Super Tuesday. That's what we want to do. South Carolina's Republican primaries will be held in about three weeks, and Super Tuesday, the day that the most states hold their primaries, is just 10 days after that. The Oregon Supreme Court ruled on Thursday that 10 Republican lawmakers who boycotted legislative sessions last year cannot run for re-election. The lawmakers were opposing bills on abortion access for minors, cross-sex procedures, and gun control. The walkout began last May. It denied the Democratic majority the two-thirds quorum needed to vote on bills. It was the longest walkout in the state's history, lasting around six weeks. The high court's ruling upholds the Secretary of State's decision to disqualify senators from the ballot. That's after Oregonians voted to amend the state constitution, barring lawmakers who have more than 10 unexcused absences from re-election. 
Republicans control a minority of the Oregon State Senate, making up 12 of the 30 seats. This latest decision affects all but two of the GOP senators. And the Nevada primary and caucuses will both be held next week. We take a look at why the state is holding two nominating contests. NTD's Daniel Monahan has more on the Silver State's process for choosing a presidential candidate. Nevada will hold two nominating contests in three days in early February to choose the Republican presidential nominee. Former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley will run in the February 6th primary that the Nevada Secretary of State is required to operate. Early voting for it began on Saturday, January 27th, and runs through Friday, February 2nd. All registered voters receive a ballot by mail. Former President Trump will run in the February 8th caucuses operated by the state Republican Party. Those will take place from 5 to 7.30 p.m. Caucus voting must be done in person, and a valid government-issued ID is required. So why the two contests? Nevada had a long history of using caucuses to choose candidates, but that all changed in 2021. After problems during the 2020 Democratic caucus, the state switched to a primary. Republicans disagreed with the new system, along with its vote-by-mail process. They tried suing to overturn the primary. When that didn't work, Republicans went ahead with a caucus. Vote Nevada Executive Director Sandra Cosgrove explains. So the, the head of the Republican Party in the state of Nevada said, we don't want to use the primary, we would prefer to have our caucus. And according to law and case law, they can do that. So technically there will be a primary for Democrats, a primary for Republicans, and then a caucus for Republicans. But the winner of the caucus would be the person that gets the delegates to go to the Republican National Convention. Since Haley and Trump aren't going head-to-head, -head, Haley's biggest competition in the primary is an option for none of these candidates at the bottom of the ballot. Registered Republican voters in Nevada can vote in both the primary and the caucuses. Nevada's Republican Governor Joe Lombardo told the Nevada Independent that he will caucus for Trump on February 8th and write in none of these candidates in the presidential preference primary on February 6th. Because we have a closed primary and it will be people who are already registered as Republicans, we know that there's a lot of support for Donald Trump among registered Republicans. It's very likely that none of these candidates would get the most votes. An Emerson poll from January 26th to January 29th shows Trump with a very significant lead nationally of 73 points to Haley's 19 points. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Federal prosecutors have been looking into claims of sexual assault and sex trafficking against Vince McMahon, according to a Wall Street Journal report. McMahon is one of the founders of the WWE, the largest professional wrestling promotion in the world. The report says that prosecutors in New York have been talking to some of the McMahon's alleged accusers. McMahon resigned from wrestling giant TKO Group and the subsidiary WWE last week over a lawsuit accusing him of the crimes. The suit was filed last week by a former employee in federal court in Connecticut. It accuses McMahon, WWE, and another executive of physical and emotional abuse, sexual assault, and trafficking. It seeks unspecified costs and damages. McMahon vigorously denies the allegations, calling them baseless. He said he looks forward to defending his name. And ex-workers of The Messenger took legal action yesterday against the company through a class action lawsuit. This just one day after the digital news site closed down and let go of all of its workers, approximately 300 people. 
The lawsuit claims that the messenger broke a law safeguarding employees during big layoffs or closures. It says the company did not provide workers with a minimum of 60 days notice and didn't give them the benefits and wages they were supposed to receive. The collapse out of the, of the outlet, founded by media entrepreneur Jimmy Finkelstein, marks one of the largest and swiftest failures of a media outlet in recent memory. The Messenger's closure comes just eight months after its debut. The company was built on a strategy of generating internet traffic from social media platforms and search engines. And Taylor Swift, Drake, Adele, Billie Eilish, these are just some of the artists whose music could soon disappear from TikTok. The social media app has lost the rights to license content from Universal Music Group, or UMG, one of the world's largest music conglomerates. Earlier this week, Universal Music, which represents hundreds of major artists, wrote a forceful open letter to TikTok. It accused TikTok of trying to build a music-based business without paying fair value for the music. UMG said the platform has repeatedly failed to protect artists' rights and interests. The music company said TikTok proposed to pay artists and songwriters at a rate that's a fraction of what other social media platforms like Meta pay and is allowing the platform to be flooded with AI-generated recordings, which UMG says poses risks to human artists. UMG said TikTok attempted to bully it into accepting a deal that was less than fair market value during negotiations to renew their contract, which expired on Wednesday. As of early Thursday, many popular songs had already disappeared from the social media platform's library, including those from Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, Olivia Rodrigo, and more. While a singer's UMG tracks will be removed, songs licensed exclusively with other music giants like Warner and Sony-owned labels shouldn't be impacted. TikTok has pushed back against claims by UMG, accusing it of putting profit above the interests of their artists and songwriters. The short-form video platform is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance. It's long been accused of providing user data to the Chinese regime. A group of bipartisan lawmakers nominated six Hong Kongers for the Nobel Peace Prize. That's for their efforts to defend the city's democratic freedom from Beijing's attempts to undermine it. The lawmakers include Congressman Chris Smith and Senator Jeff Merkley. They are the chair and co-chair of the Congressional Executive Commission on China. On the list of nominees, first off, Jimmy Lai, founder of pro-democracy newspaper Apple Daily. Lai is a prominent critic of Beijing. Hong Kong police raided the newspaper's headquarters and it was later forced to shut down. Next, Cardinal Joseph Zen. He was convicted last year for failing to register a fund to help pro-democracy protesters. Then there's Joshua Wong. He's a prominent activist and testified on Capitol Hill over Hong Kong's pro-democracy protests in 2019. He was sentenced to three months behind bars for revealing information about a police officer who injured a pro-democracy protester. A warning from Beijing to Ukraine. China lodged a protest yesterday asking Ukraine to remove Chinese firms from a blacklist. China's ambassador in Kyiv said the list could hurt bilateral ties. Those on the list are designated as sponsors of Russia's war on Ukraine. The blacklist has no legal implications but works as a reputational tool to make companies think twice before working with Russia. On the list are some of China's biggest oil and gas companies, such as Sinopec. Oil and gas is the primary source of revenue for Moscow now, and it became China's top crude oil supplier 
last year. The Kremlin has leaned closer to China amid Western sanctions. Trade between the two countries boomed, hitting over $200 billion in 2023. Leaked documents show China approved lethal aid to Russia for its war on Ukraine. That's according to an April report from The Washington Post. As for Ukraine, it's been careful not to anger China. The communist country was Ukraine's biggest trade partner before the war, and it's still an, import, an important consumer of Ukrainian grain, sunflower oil, and iron ore. Ukraine has been pushing for peace through a series of high-level international meetings. China joined one of them last year, but later stopped attending. And in more China news, cancer risks hidden in counterfeit luxury makeup products from China that are then shipped abroad. The heavy metals in these goods hitting over 900 times the safety limit. More details coming tonight at 9.30 p.m. Eastern on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. And coming up, a first, the first in a one-two punch of atmospheric river storms hit California, floods roads. One resident recalls how he was rescued after being trapped in his car. An Alaska deep freeze, the extreme cold, wrecking havoc in more ways than one, and how Alaskans are dealing with it. Over 170 individuals across 25 U.S. cities arrested over one week. U.S. immigration officials say they are potentially dangerous illegal immigrants. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement announced yesterday that 171 people were arrested in an operation over 11 days across 25 major cities. All of those arrested were potentially dangerous illegal immigrants. Our dedicated and committed, committed law enforcement officers zeroed in on removable, at-large non-citizens who are wanted for or who have already been convicted of horrible, almost unspeakable crimes like assault against children, including sexual assault and murder. 103 of those arrested had been previously convicted or had pending charges for crimes including assault against children. The ICE deputy director commended the officers and emphasized the limited resources available to them. As to when and if such individuals will be deported, the deputy director said the time frame is, quote, highly variable. Former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin made a surprise appearance yesterday to rally in Texas. The rally was held by a convoy of truckers calling for greater border security. for being the hard-working, independent, patriotic Americans that you are. Hundreds participated in the rally near Austin, Texas. Palin and other speakers criticized the Biden administration for failing to secure the southern border. The Take Our Border Back convoy began a cross-country journey from Virginia Beach this past Monday. The convoy will end at Eagle Pass, Texas, near the U.S.-Mexico border tomorrow. 59 House Democrats yesterday voted with Republicans to pass a bill to deport illegal immigrants who were caught driving under the influence. 150 Democrats voted against it. To discuss this development, we're joined by, by Alfonso Aguilar, former chief of the U.S. Office of Citizenship. Alfonso, how does the recent vote in the House of Representatives align with or challenge the principles of immigration and citizenship that the U.S. traditionally holds? Well, I think it's a positive step. Uh, we always need to have a balance in terms of immigration, of being a welcoming nation, but at the same time taking our border security, our enforcement uh, seriously. Uh, this administration, sadly, has not taken border security seriously. 
they've followed a, an open borders policies and that's that has encouraged this massive flow of people so i, I was impressed that 59 democrats that's dramatic would join republicans on a bill that uh, uh strengthens uh immigration law that uh, tackles uh immigration in a tough uh, manner. Do you so think this I signifies think this is a, a shift, a significant shift in terms of the bipartisan support for how to deal with the border? Uh, I, I think so. Uh, I think so. I, I think Democrats are being pressured by their constituents to take immigration more seriously, to take immigration enforcement and border security more seriously. And I suspect that we're going to see more and more Democrats taking a stronger position uh, on, on, on immigration. So we're looking at the role of public opinion here and what kinds of incidents and what uh, what's the scenario that's really influencing public opinion for Democrats as well here? Well, sadly, we're, we're seeing widespread, widespread uh, crime. We're seeing more and more undocumented immigrants involved in criminal activity. We saw it recently in New York, uh, over a dozen uh, illegal uh, immigrants uh, beating up a New York City uh, police officer. Uh, and, and that's just one case. I mean, we're seeing throughout uh, uh, the country. Uh, and so I think that uh, the people, uh, constituents of con members of Congress are asking for tougher positions against illegal immigration. And, and I think that is very healthy. I mean, we're seeing uh, an increase on, of uh, migrants arriving at the border that are in terrorist lists. Uh, and because of this massive flow of people also, um, border patrol, the border patrol is overwhelmed and they can't do uh, their interdiction uh, job to stop the entrance of fentanyl. So for many, many reasons, Americans are, are, are I've made this their number one issue um, for the November elections and want both Republicans and Democrats to be tougher, to crack down on illegal immigration. And I think this is healthy. It doesn't mean that uh, Americans are against uh, legal immigration or against immigration in general, but they're against this irregular, massive flow of people that puts the country at risk. So there's a high, high concern and growing concern about public safety. And at the same time, there's that ongoing discussion about how to show understanding to people who may want to come across the border. How do you see balancing those two things? Well, obviously, coming illegally is not the way to do it. Uh, I think that there are way too many people t uh, abusing the asylum system, and, and they're doing it because the Biden administration has facilitated that. They, they uh, changed the rules on asylum, so it's very easy for people to come to the border without any legitimate claim to asylum, ask for it, and then let be, uh, and be allowed to, to, to come in the country. So I, I think we, we have to encourage people to come legally. And the way to do that really is to shut down the border, uh, send a clear message that if you don't have a legitimate claim to asylum, don't make the very dangerous trip to the southern border, that there are legal ways. And if you look at the legal numbers of immigration, they have remained very healthy. Even during the Trump years, we were allowing a million people, we were giving a million people uh, green card status, permanent resident status, and naturalizing up to 800,000 people every year. So those are healthy levels of legal immigration. But we have to send a clear message that we're not going to stand for the illegal entry of people, for people arriving at our border without any legitimate claim to come in the country. Okay, great to speak with you. Alfonso Aguilar, former chief of the U.S. Office of Citizenship. Appreciate it, your time. Thank you.
The first in a one-two punch of atmospheric river storms soaked Southern California with drenching rains yesterday. It flooded roads, toppled trees, and caused traffic accidents. A second heavier storm is due to roll into California this weekend. This one will bring high winds back to the northern part of the state with much heavier downpours in the south. The storm will also dump more snow in the mountains. The California Governor's Office of Emergency Services has activated its operations center. It's also positioned personnel and equipment in areas most at risk from the weather. A Southern California resident recalls how the pouring rain got him into a dangerous situation. Frank Capitulo had to be rescued after his car stalled in the middle of an inundated street. I didn't see, you know, I, I already saw this water really destroyed, but I didn't expect it. it was that deep already. Then they pulled me out, you know, give me your arm, because they were, the truck was starting my car, and uh, give me your arm, you know, arm. They pulled me out of my car. If you think it's like this, if you can, you know, if you got, you know, if you can make it, don't do, you know, don't go through water like this one. You don't want to get stuck, you know. Capitulo says he saw other cars managing to pass through the water, so he tried as well. He suspects that the waves the other vehicles made entered his car's exhaust, causing the emergency. Capitulo wasn't the only one getting stuck. He recalled that other drivers were in an even worse situation, being totally submerged underwater. First responders reportedly rescued those drivers first before helping Capitulo. And an Arctic spell has been hitting Alaska, plunging much of the state into a deep freeze. Temperatures have dipped as low as minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit in recent days in some places. Anchorage is seeing some of its coldest temperatures in years. The city mayor has opened warming facilities for those who are homeless or who don't have reliable heating. It's been cold and we've had a ton of snow. And really, if you like the outdoors in the winter, it's, it's been one of the best winters so far that I can remember. Uh, it's critical, you know, as you can imagine, when it gets less than minus 10, minus 20, you really got to just have everything covered. Otherwise, uh, you know, you're at risk for frostbite. Being cold has caused heating fuel to thicken so much that home heating systems and stoves stopped working. And water lines have frozen in some spots. Police say a man believed to have fled a fire at a home in Sutton was found dead early Wednesday, possibly due to exposure. Anchorage is asking businesses to vacate their properties until snow is removed from the rooftops. At least two commercial buildings have suffered collapses under the weight, and crews are shoveling thick layers of snow from rooftops around the city. For the first time, an advertising company has settled an opioid lawsuit. Publicis, a company that worked on Purdue Pharma's OxyContin account, was accused of falsely marketing opioids as safe. The agreed settlement of $350 million must be paid within the next two months. In addition, the French marketing company will not take on any more opioid clients. Publicis worked on Purdue Pharma's OxyContin account and, according to New York Attorney General Letitia James, convicted doctors, convinced doctors to overprescribe opioids. The company, in a statement, said it did not admit to wrongdoing but hopes the payment will help the effort to combat opioid addiction. The Miami Police Department is asking for help to solve a porch pirate case. The case involves a woman telling a child to steal a package. Police shared a video of the incident. The adult actually is telling the child, motioning where the package is, and telling the child to go get that package. Uh, we don't know if the child even knew what he or she was doing. I got this. 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 I got this.
We're not sure who this adult is, if it's a parent, a guardian, but regardless, it's an adult that should know better. We want your help in identifying this adult. Police said the package had about $40 worth of clothing inside it. The victim of the theft said she checked her ring video when her package didn't show up. She said she was stunned to see a child was involved. Coming up, how did Groundhog Day come to be? We take a look at the history of the tradition. And in golf news, what happens with the proposed merger between Live Golf and the PGA now that the PGA has a new partner? NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss when we return. Are you ready for an early spring? Well, today is Groundhog Day. And the country's most famous weather predictor, Punxsutawney Phil, has made his forecast. But what this weather did not provide is a shadow or reason to hide. Glad tidings on this Groundhog Day! An early spring is on the way! The celebrated groundhog emerged from his burrow this morning, and apparently he saw no shadow, so it will be an early spring. This year, Phil's weather prediction drew thousands of revelers in Punxsutawney, a small town northeast of Pittsburgh. The Staten Island Zoo held its own annual groundhog ceremony this morning as well. Like his friend Phil, Chuck also predicted an early spring, and zoo staff say he's been right about 80% of the time, making Chuck the most accurate groundhog in North America. We had a great time. It was open to the public for the first time in four years, and so many people came out to hear Chuck predict an early spring, which I think is exactly what they wanted to hear. So how did Groundhog Day start? It's part of a tradition rooted in European agricultural life, and TD's Andrew Thomas has more on the history of the event. Groundhog Day rose to fame after the 1993 movie of the same name starring Bill Murray. The day marks the midpoint between the shortest day of the year on the winter solstice and the spring equinox. It was a practice, a belief in Central Europe uh, that uh, the badger or the bear, hibernating animals, would come out on February 2nd and uh, then uh, whether or not they saw the shadow would be a prediction about when uh, spring would come. And for farming communities, you know, before you have all the weather technology we have today, that would have been very important. Dutch settlers in the Punxsutawney area started celebrating the holiday in the late 1880s. I think it's just, you know, one of these uh, traditional rituals that people enjoy participating in that maybe take them away from modern life for 15 minutes. And Starting in the 1930s, groundhog clubs opened in eastern Pennsylvania. They were social clubs that intended to preserve Pennsylvania Dutch culture and traditions. About 15 remain active. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, no playoff games this weekend, but we do have the Pro Bowl instead. Ratings were down last year when they turned it into a flag football game. Is that here to stay? Yeah, I think so. I mean, tackle football is really just too dangerous for what, for what should be an all-star game exhibition, really. No player wants to get injured in this game. Certainly no team owner wants to see one of their players get injured, too. Now, when, even when it was tackle football, the game certainly didn't have much, as much competitive fire, which made for lower TV ratings. I mean, baseball's all-star game generally draws a bigger crowd, and that's about the only time baseball outdraws football. But what the NFL has done is surround the game with some skills competition challenges that pit one conference against the other. Like, they have the passing skills challenge, they also have dodgeball. There's a high-stakes game where players have to catch punts with footballs already in their hands. 
So there's really a lot of there's really a lot to see actually besides the flag football game. And now moving on to golf news, at least one prominent PGA golfer, Jordan Spieth, has said he doesn't think the league needs to merge with the Saudi Arabia-owned Live Golf League in light of their new partnership with some U.S.-based investors. Is that the general feeling that we're having here? You know, the longer this goes on, the more they, they seem varied, actually. The main argument for it is that they want to unify the game of golf under one roof. Now, that makes sense certainly from an ownership standpoint, because why bet against each other when you can just combine into one and save money? I mean, this was the primary reason the old NFL merged with the AFL like a half century ago. Player salaries were skyrocketing because the teams and leagues were really competing and bidding against each other for players. The players definitely won that battle. Now, should Live and PGA merge, there will be a number of difficult questions to answer, though. Like, what happens to all those players who switch to Live Golf? I mean, I'm, surely they wouldn't get an equity ownership chair just like the current PGA players are getting for remaining loyal. But what even happens to Live Golf itself? I mean, right now it's stained with Saudi Arabia's atrocious human rights record. No uh, market sponsors want that at all. If the PGA owns it, they would surely have to change the name or something. In any case, the PGA getting these new U.S. investors certainly helps them compete with Liv financially. And Dave, looking at NFL news, the Washington Commanders hired Dan Quinn as their new head coach yesterday. Uh, that's filling the last remaining head coach job. Where does this leave former Patriots coach Bill Belichick? Yeah, I mean, unemployed, I guess. He could apply for an assistant head coaching job, and the Cowboys have one because Quinn was their defensive coordinator. But I don't think that'll happen, though. I mean, he's way too decorated of a head coach to want that, and really, I don't think any head coach would want to have someone on their staff who's more qualified than they are. I mean, he won six Super Bowls with Tom Brady. That's more than anyone else ever. But Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones was actually asked whether he would be able to work with Belichick just the other day. He, of course, said yes. Now, that's significant for a couple reasons. One is that the Cowboys already have a head coach, Mike McCarthy, who's thought to be on the hot seat. And two, if they got rid of McCarthy and hired Belichick, it would really be interesting to see how Jones and Belichick would work together. Both of those guys have a reputation for wanting control. But for the time being, it appears Belichick is sitting out next season. All right, Dave Martin, thank you as always. Thanks, guys. A giant ice palace is taking shape up in upstate New York as the, 24, the 2024 Saranac Lake Winter Carnival kicks in this week. Dating back to 1898, Winter Carnival celebrations are an enduring tradition throughout the New York's Adirondacks. While the construction has faced occasional pauses, the icy structures remain a key feature of the event. In the past, renowned architects designed the palaces, but now residents of Sarnak Lake take on the task, adding their personal touch to this frosty spectacle. If you're wondering how many years you'll have with your furry companion, you might want to check out a new study that examines the lifespans of different dog breeds. Researchers looked at health records of nearly 600,000 mostly purebred dogs from more than 150 breeds in Britain. The researchers categorized each breed's overall body size as small, medium, or large, and its head shape as flat-faced, medium-proportioned, or long-faced. They found that small breeds lived longer, 12.7 years on average, compared with 11.9 years for large breeds, which is consistent with prior research. And breeds with flat faces had shorter average lifespans than dogs with medium and long snouts. Also, female dogs lived slightly longer than male dogs. The study was published yesterday in the journal Scientific Reports. Well, that's all for today's news. 
Thank you so much for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll have more stories on Monday.